This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to this special segment of uh, Breaking Banks. It's a mashup between Breaking Banks and Breaking Banks Europe, actually. I have uh, my co-host, Matteo Rizzi, on. Uh, Matteo, welcome back. Hey, Brett. Always great uh, to share some showtime with you. Absolutely. Are you in Lisbon today? Where are you today? Lisbon. Sunny Lisbon. Fantastic. All right. Um, so today we are going to go down to Africa. Uh, uh, Matteo and I have been spending a lot more time in Africa over the last few years. Obviously, big investments are happening in the fintech space there. Um, you know, we have uh, some big names there, obviously, not just the big mobile money schemes, but you have some big um uh, you know, fintech players like Flutterwave and Opay and others making some real uh, traction in the market there. Big investments going into fintech because um, when we look at the development of um, uh, commerce, internet-based commerce in Africa, this wave has really just been happening the last few years based around mobile. So, um, you know, with most of the economies across the African continent, the big boom in in internet-based commerce has only happened with the emergence of uh, investment in smartphones. Um, and uh, this is really where uh, this has accelerated investment in fintech in the last few years. So we're very uh, happy to have with us uh, uh, from uh, Fintech South Africa, uh, Andreas uh, Perez. Andreas, welcome to uh, the show. Andreas uh, brings 10 years of working in the financial services sector. He's uh, got detailed knowledge of cryptocurrency and payment solutions. Andreas uh, Perez, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Very, very excited to be here. Um, like I said to you, when I met you a couple of weeks in Cape Town, um, you were one of the first books that I read when I started uh, coming into the industry. So very, very excited to be here. Very honored to be here. So thank you very much for having me. No, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. I apologize to both of you. I'm struggling a bit with a bit of a cold this morning. So, um, uh, but uh, that's that's great. So first of all, uh, tell me about the FinTech Association in South Africa, when it was established and you know what's what's the makeup of uh, of of the association? Is it primarily startups? Is there mainstream banks? Uh, you know who who are the members and and what's the function of fintech uh, the fintech association there? Sure. So I started the fintech association of South Africa with the idea around three years ago. Um, you know, every time that I tried to look for a networking platform for access to resources from regulators, I couldn't find anything uh, coming from one of the largest fintechs in South Africa. Also, um, all this data was not available. Hence, you know, like we decided to uh, create a platform. With this, we came together with uh, a couple of industry leaders. Um, the fintech ecosystem in South Africa is a very small ecosystem where a lot of the founders know each other. 
Um, and then FinTech Association of South Africa was creating as a nonprofit organization uh, dedicated to promoting and supporting the growth and development of the fintech industry in South Africa um, as a whole. The fintech industry in South Africa was not well represented. We have Payment Association of South Africa, we have the Reserve Bank, we have other associations, but in essence, these do not represent the interests of the fintech ecosystem in South Africa. When we speak about fintech, we speak about different verticals. We speak about payments, we speak about investing, we speak about cryptocurrency, we speak about lending. So some of right, these right. Uh, industries uh, do have some sort of like representation. However, the, call it, uh, the impact that these ones have is minimum rather than coming as a collective because it's a full ecosystem that one decision that gets made, call it on the national payment system, uh, it does affect how the other business operates, call it e-commerce, call it the cryptocurrency. So all in all, um, we decided to come together as a collective uh, to address uh, a couple of the issues. Um, you know, like boosting financial inclusion, um, enhancing financial literacy. There is a big problem in Africa uh, around financial literacy. Um, you know, response like like promoting a responsible innovation. Um, as we know, like innovation is faster than regulation. And you know, like if we as industry leaders, uh, we don't protect our own ecosystem. Uh, you know, like who's gonna do it? Um, I think. Not everybody has the same, uh, you know, kind of um, morals when it comes into the industry. So I think that we do need to protect our own ecosystem because, you know, regulation is quite, it's quite, no, it's not as fast that. as innovation. You know, one could say it was about time, guys, because, uh, you know, being, being South Africa, one of the engine countries, you know, of the, of the, of the continent, uh, you guys were far from uh, like uh, being the first one, you know, to set up and organize yourself, even if, uh, you know, fintech has been happening. Uh, and we'll talk more about it later, I think, uh, uh, than, uh, you know, this, this past few, uh, few months, you know, we, we, we helped that the very beginning, uh, you know, the African fintech network, uh, you know, back in the days, I think it was almost seven years ago. And uh, to, you know, in, in places like uh, Kenya or Nigeria or Egypt, uh, these sort of uh, organizations uh, sort of were, you know, were born already. And uh, why do you think that? Yeah, it more like so 2014, long? right? Exactly. Yeah, was, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Why did it took so long? To be, to be honest, I think is a lack of... Um, cooperation uh, a lot of the founders here i found that we're dealing with a lot of egos if i might say it uh, where people found that you know because you're a competitor i don't really want to come together with you um everybody was That's fighting fair. their own battles you know like every time like i think uh what we did well at fintech association of south africa is to get the support from the regulators like the reserve bank like the fsea uh and the likes of those um just because Essentially, they don't want to deal with one fintech at a time. They don't want the one fintech nagging about, you know, like what they want to do and how they want to do it. They just want to have one collective that comes. Um, so it did it did take some time. Um, and you know, like South Africa is going through a massive transformation when it comes to fintech. We have something that is called Visual 2025. We have uh the Coffee Act bill that is coming into place, changes to regulations with the FSCA uh when it comes to crypto, when it comes to lending. Um, so at the moment moment, South Africa is going through a massive transformation when it comes to payments, uh, which it only makes sense that the fintechs, it was time for all the um, leaders in the fintech industry come together as a collective. 
Do you think also that is uh, part of the reason is that uh, traditionally South African has been a, a sort of a bank-led uh, innovation ecosystem, right? So yeah, I think that, if I put- yeah, yeah, that seems to be you know more of the like if you look at what's happened with mobile money alone in terms of like um, you know M-Pesa and and other plays, you know Africa was quite insistent that only deposit taking could be done through banks, for example, yeah. rather than through, uh, you know, fintech correspondent uh, agents like with with and others. So, you know, they, they have restricted certain elements of innovation that uh, favoured the, the incumbent sector. It's very similar to what's happened in the US to some extent. So yeah. um, this would appear to have created a, a, a less attractive environment for fintechs. But is that changing? Uh, look, I think uh, we need to look at a little bit of the statistics of South Africa. There is uh, 43 million people in South Africa, right? Out of that 43 million people, 96% are financially included, meaning they have a bank account. The problem is that, you know, like from data, about 13 million people uh, withdraw the cash the moment that the bank, the funds right. touch their account, right? So call it social grants, call it uh, salaries, call it all of those South Africa is a very like cash based economy where, you know, like people love to feel and it's a trust, it's a trust instrument that they need to see the money. Um, there is beliefs that, you know, if you leave the money in your account at the end of the month, this money is going to disappear. So there is a massive resilience of, you know, like people being educated that perhaps uh, a digital transaction is more effective than to have the cash is also a lot safer. Uh, but this goes in hand to uh, what I'm talking about is financial literacy is like, mm-hmm. how do we educate uh, most of the consumers that, you know, like using the likes of a mobile money, uh, something that is called instant TFT here, which have taken, you know, like been growing over the years, um, you know, like car penetration in South Africa is still remains slow. And, um, you know, like I think the banks have seen that uh, and the people have seen that transacting via fintech in some option is more convenient, uh, trustworthy and a lot cheaper than, you know, like what your bank. Uh, we see the likes of a retailers coming, the MNOs coming, uh, playing a massive role in the fintech industry in South Africa. And this is where we will see um, a little bit of the banks, I wouldn't say like taking a knock. Because, you know, like something that I always say is like the battle is not between fintech and banks. The battle is around digitalis, uh, you know, like financially including people in the digitalization of cash. So it's not banks against fintech, it's everything against cash. How, how many fintechs are there now in South Africa? Just give us a uh, landscape. The fintech landscape in South Africa is majority payments companies. I call it uh, around... 350, which is 65, yeah, about 350 payments companies. Uh, but all in all, is about about 1,200 to 1,300 uh, fintechs that we have identified in South Africa. I actually have a curiosity, um, Andres, because you know, do we, we, of course, you know, InsurTech is a is a very big adjacency, you know, to to the fintech space. And uh, uh, whether or not, if you include South Africa, basically you double the the penetration of InsurTech in the continent from 1.5 to 3%. You know, yeah. so it's a, and if you exclude South Africa, it's actually literally less, less than 2%. Are you guys dealing also with that opportunity? Because in such a bankerized uh, uh, ecosystem, uh, 
InsurTech uh, should be a, a great opportunity as well. So I was just curious whether or not the association includes insurance business as well. Well, didn't Discover Bank come out of like an insurer there? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, uh, we do we do include uh, InsurTech in our um, as part of our memberships. Um, now. Again, back to South African, what the South African ecosystem looks like. 70% of these uh, 43 million of South Africans just, just somehow use some sort of insurance product, which is led by funeral cover. Um, so when we talk about insurance, a lot of them use insurance cover. And then we see the likes of uh, retailers, um, the likes of soccer teams actually selling insurance or funeral cover uh, for their following. So when it comes to South funeral, Africa- like- Funeral cover. Yeah, you will it's see. It's like the so- most popular yeah. insurance. Interesting. I mean, it's crazy that uh, a soccer team in South Africa has their own insurance cover uh, program in South Africa. I think it's a, it's a, I think it's a, a cultural thing. Uh, I mean, if you see some of what, the, so who are, are the are biggest really fintechs? Who are the biggest fintechs in South Africa right now? The biggest fintechs in South Africa, I have to say, is the likes of Lesaka Tech, uh, which is, I think, a lot of people don't really know, but they process most of the uh, grant uh, payments in South Africa, uh, PayU, uh, Stitch, also Luno, Lulaland, um, Purple Group, you name it. I think, uh, you know, in South Africa, Flex, it's quickly becoming... Flexcube as well, right? The Flexcube, the one that is uh, that is doing lazing, uh, you know, car lazing and... Uh, yeah. Right. Mo- yep. Mobicrate, uh, Flexpay. Um, yeah. What What sort of um, you know in terms of the notable rounds in, in terms of investment? What have been the big investments in South Africa in the last few years? I think the largest one is been by Time Bank, uh, MFS, um, also Lulaland. Um, so Time Luna. is T Y M E, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's a South African based. Uh, let's call it a neo bank. And how are they going? Um, because, you know, the neobank uh, model has tended to be a little bit more successful in the West um, uh, than it has, uh, you know, in 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 Pan-Africa generally. Yeah, I think uh, the, it is a bit challenging to go against the four main banks in South Africa, FNB, Standard Bank, APSA. Um, those are banks that have been established for many years and have a big portion of the market, right? But now with the new challenging banks like Capitec, like uh, Ubank, like Time Bank, they are actually slowly acquiring a share of that market by building trust, by you know offering different services other than you know deposit receiving payments, but more like funeral cover, um, more embedded finance, lending, um, easier ways to open a bank account. Like if you if you see. The likes of a time bank don't necessarily have branches in South Africa. What they have done is they have partnered with retailers like Pick and Pay to open kiosk in every single Pick and Pay that they have. So essentially, time bank doesn't have any branches. They use um, the resources or through a partnership with the retailer. Actually, I was uh, when I was listening to you, Andres. I was actually thinking that South Africa is literally in uh, a unique position, you know, compared to the rest of the continent. Because uh, in a country where almost everybody is included, you know, quote unquote, the the problem really becomes, uh, you know, to make the system work in terms of uh, value added services, you know, because the most of the account uh, in a country are pretty useless. And I'm pretty sure, mm-hmm. for example, that the informal, you know, the informal lending circle, you know, especially in rural areas, uh, are super strong. They don't even touch the bank accounts. 
So back to, you know, what is even the interest and the concrete actions of uh, the, like, uh, the local uh, industry players uh, to actually get into this uh, education and, and, and financial industry. Uh, sorry, and, and, and financial literacy. Well, it's, How it's innovation ex- as well, right? It speaks to the heart of the innovation, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, uh, I come from a fintech uh, which at the start, like a lot of people didn't understand how it works, right? The banks educate the consumers that do not put your banking details in another platform other than our bank, right? And instant TFT is pretty much facilitating that payment on behalf of the customer. So you have to go to tell users, to tell merchants that it does, it's it's not going to take your money, that it is safe, that it's secure. So I think a lot of the fintechs uh, or like some of the fintechs have embarked or paved the road for the new fintechs to develop new products. So like I said, it's all about trust and how how much trust does the consumer have on your product that you know you can you're not gonna fall for a scam. You, your money is not going to disappear and that your money is safe. Um, t- now, uh, in terms of the regulatory response, um, what is uh, you know what's the regulator's position for fintech? Is there a is there a formal fintech charter for banks there? Um, what about for payments licensing and and lending? You know what what are the uh, the, the fintech structures in place from a regulatory perspective? So from a regulatory perspective, is the South Africa Reserve Bank that regulates most of the fintechs, right? So there is the likes of a payment association of South Africa, which in essence is in charge of the national payment system, uh, which in essence gives this license to system operators and third party payment providers uh, to process payments on behalf of their customers, right? Then we have the NCR, which is the National Credit Regulator, which in essence uh, regulates all the lenders and the FSCA, which uh, regulates all your crypto asset service providers, all your investment service providers, or any of those. So in essence, the regulatory ecosystem is quite friendly. There is something called the IFWG, which is led by the Reserve Bank and all participants from the regulatory perspective uh, take part in this group. Interesting. So I actually was curious about, uh, you know, in, in, in other part of a very developed uh, fintech ecosystems uh, as, a, as, a, as an investor, the, the, the statement is that uh, most of the founders are actually not Africans, right? Or, or they're actually... Kind, or or and or the best funded uh, startups uh, are you know with a non african team you know people are actually uh, it, it, for for an investor it is uh, safer gives more confidence to invest in a team that for example has studied abroad and i wonder whether or not in south africa which is a rather like a more developed uh, uh, structure at the ecosystem it has the same phenomenon uh, it does, and it's unfortunately, um, most of the co-founders are led by white males. Um, I think uh, a report by Brighter Bridges last year uh, mentioned that only 8% of startups in Africa are half or are led by a women co-founder, uh, but in South Africa, it's predominantly um, a white male. And so how do you think the association can help uh, with that balance, that mix? 
Well, what we have done is we started um, partnering with uh, big corporates with the likes of uh, AWS, Microsoft, um, different legal companies, ENS, Deloitte, all of those. And essentially what we're trying to do is identify fintechs, what we call CASITECs, which are based in townships, which are developing solutions that will be deployed mainly in townships. You know, South Africa That's has a big yeah, yeah. township economy. Um, so the role that we are playing is to include more of those participants. You know, like once you start, once you have an idea, want to start a, a fintech in South Africa, it's very difficult to navigate the the regulatory landscape. First of all, right? I think uh, for you to figure out whether you need a license or not is very difficult because the assets are there; they're publicly available. However, they're not translated into easy information that perhaps somebody not with the level of education from a regulatory or low point of view is very difficult. And there is also the stigma that uh, a lot of the companies that offer those services are expensive. Um, so essentially what we have done is we have decided to sort of like get those partnerships and put it in a package for uh, these fintechs. Well, that's good. That's uh, amiable because of, uh, you know, that there's a need to get more obviously localized um, focus as, as well as uh, for, for women and gender balance. Um, one of the other uh, issues that we see coming up, uh, obviously, globally right now is the impact of artificial intelligence with ChatGPT and so forth. Chamath Papatadia, who who was the, one of the co-founding team members at, at Meta, Facebook, you know, big voice in Silicon Valley, um, you know, these days. Chamath has come out and said that this is, you know, AI is going to turn venture capital on its head as well because you'll have much smaller teams being able to now create these um, new startups. So, uh, you know, is there anything happening right now in terms of AI that's localized uh, on the South African front that, you you know, in the uh, fintech space? At the moment, uh, nothing as yet, not part of the regulatory landscape, not part of, I think uh, most of the AI has been used towards marketing, um, but that I know of, um, I have not heard anything in the ecosystem of fintechs. Well, there's an opportunity, to use AI. right? Exactly. Yeah, very cool. I mean, I do think it's going to be um, the next wave of investment is going to be AI. And then I think also, um, you know, we're going to see new app companies uh with smart classes over the next few years, you know, as, as the a AR um, market uh, pops up as well. But what about uh, interoperability with other African um, countries in terms of their, their ecosystems? You know, we, yeah. we obviously have seen, you know, we, we have some fintechs that have been very successful, you know, across Africa. Yeah, I think interoperability is a massive issue in South Africa, first of all, because the regulatory landscape of each country is completely different. So what is applicable in South Africa is completely different to what is in Namibia, completely different to what is in Mozambique. Uh, currencies, liquidity issues, um, there is initiatives, uh, one is called the PAPS. Um, and the other one is called the TCIB, which is uh, funded by the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation, which in essence are trying to address those issues of interoperability. But at the moment, uh, you know, from a remittance point of view, South Africa is one of the most expensive countries um, or G20 countries to send remittances. Uh, and the volumes are really big. So, you know, for, for remittances, um, the SIDIC region uh, is a big opportunity for any company looking to enter the market. Fair enough. So you know you one of your like uh, domain of uh, of expertise, Andres, uh, is the whole like a crypto space, right? And 
by the way, you know, the, the Brett, you will allow me to uh, to steal one minute of the show to okay. uh, to say that uh, we are uh, we are organizing uh, or or helping MIS and Rwanda Finance to organize the first edition of the inclusive uh, fintech forum. You can go on inclusive fintech forum. So this is the Monetary Authority of Singapore, right? MIS? Exactly, exactly. And together with Rwanda Finance, because Kigali wants to become one of the catalysts of fintech for the for the continent, they have a very sort of uh, forward-looking legislation, and you know, and and very. When, when is this it, happening? It is uh, twenty to twenty-second of of June. Is a not-for-profit. Uh, event but the aim is to invite regulation regulators from all over the countries you know ministers are coming hopefully a couple of presidents right. i can't i can tell you i can tell you like uh, yet uh, i can't spoil any official presence just yet otherwise they will you know all get in trouble but uh, the event is going to be significant and one of the themes is of course uh, digital assets now what is really interesting is that uh, it is not easy to make African countries talk about either CBDCs or their crypto strategy, because uh, even if it is a project that is particularly potentially transforming for the country, it is not a clear success uh, yet. Like Nigeria, for example, you know, they have a C one of the few countries that have de openly declared to be working uh, on a CBDC. It is still like uh, not super um how do you say it uh, not super prone you know in in uh, it's had in some talking. issues yeah, exactly issues. exactly yeah, yeah. exactly in, in talking about it what's the south africa position so south africa has something called um the project coca uh project coca one was they are deployed in 2018 as a poc and now we're in the second phase, which is Project Coca T, um, to use uh, DLT technology. Is, is that is that with a C or with a K? Because if it was C, it's uh, a pretty, it's a pretty no. interesting name. Coca. Uh, no, it's, uh, let me just, it's K-H-O. Uh, between between one Ital between one Italian to a to a to a Spanish to to, to, a, yeah. to an Hispanophone, no? <laughs> you know. But hey. You're so, half Colombian, so, <laughs> right? Said. Yeah, half Colombian, half Brazilian, ended up in South Africa. In, in, in South Africa, yeah. Well, yeah, this, so, is, this so is a global so, show, so that's good. So talk Do to me have, about the Project COCA. So Project COCA 2 um, is pretty much a program developed by the South Africa Reserve Bank, um, exploring the you know, the use of DLT technology uh, to create an intra-settlement system um, between banks. So we have the likes of a standard bank, the likes of uh, NetBank, APSA, um, Apitech. So it's mostly a program for the banks. Fantastic. Well, um, Andreas, it's been great to get a bit of a, a feel for what's happening in South Africa. It sounds like the real revolution at fintech is is not going to be about financial inclusion as it is in much of the rest of uh, the African continent, but about access, financial access in terms of more sophisticated, uh, more trusted, um, you know, uh, mechanisms and more localized, which is, uh, you know, obviously is a very different strategy for fintech than, um, you know, uh, most of the rest of the world where we're going for volume uh, you know, as 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 core there. So, how can people find out more about the fintech association, Andres? Uh, yeah. So our email is hello at finasa.org.za. 
So that's hello at finasa.org.ca. And okay, finasa.org, is that the uh, website as well? Yeah. All right, we'll we'll put that uh, on when we uh, we post the show as well. So um, uh, thank you, Andreas, uh, for joining us. All the best with the FinTech Association there. And Matteo, thanks for uh, sitting in the, the hosting chair with me again today. Thank you, Thank you, Matteo. Get, get better, my friend. Thank you. Let's take a quick break and we'll be, uh, we'll be back after these words from our sponsors. When it comes to global payments, there's no standard consumer or one-size-fits-all solution. Each market's payment landscape is unique and so are its participants. So how do you decide what's relevant to your business and your customers? Start with the Global Payments Report from our partner FIS, with data on more than 48,000 consumers across 40 global markets. The Global Payments Report breaks down how consumers pay today, both online and at the point of sale, and projects how behaviors will change in the future. Get up to speed with the fast-changing payments landscape and position your business for future growth. Download the Global Payments Report today by visiting worldpayglobalpaymentsreport.com. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. I'm your host, Brett King. Um, I am recovering a little bit from uh, the dreaded lurg, the flu, uh, this week, so... You'll have to excuse me if I sound a little bit subdued, but uh, we have an interesting, uh, a, a interesting startup uh, that we have invited on the show today to get a bit of detail on. It's an alternative approach to uh, credit scoring and lending um, that is is emerging, particularly in LATAM. But uh, you know, um, it, this is a a model problem that I, I think. Um, is going to increasingly be looked at around the world, particularly as economic conditions change and as uh, you know, we get da- more data-rich uh, exposure. So we're welcoming on the show Yoel uh, Gavloski. Uh, Yoel is uh, one of the founders of Quash.ai. Uh, Yoel, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thank you so much, Ed. Thank you for having us today. Quash is an interesting name. How did you come up with the name Quash for for a, a fintech slash AI, AI startup? So we were beginning the company and we knew we wanted to focus in into credit, in financial inclusion and AI, but uh, we wanted to find a name that, that was catchy enough to, to remain on time. So at that specific point, we heard Jack Ma saying that, you know, the, the changes are happening. Uh, Jack Ma from Alibaba. Are happening so fast that make sure that you choose a name that in 40 years years it, it still maintains relevance. So uh, but where three most innovative technologies that we think will will win in the next 40 to 50 years. And Qua was from quantum computing, uh, Ash was from hash from blockchain and that AI from AI. So we thought Quash was catchy enough and and brings that vibe. Although we we currently use mostly AI and potentially be using blockchain and hashing technology in, in the near future. We don't expect to use uh, quantum for at least an extent to 15 years. Well, in 40 years, you know, it's uh, debatable whether we'll still use URLs, of course, um, you know, sure. or, or phone numbers <laughs> or mm-hmm. identity uh, uh, documents in the way we do today. But anyway, that's uh, that's another debate. Um, 
so uh, tell tell me about the 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 business itself. You're focused on lending to less served credit worthy borrowers uh, in in um you know when it says on your uh, on your website. So um, uh, you're talking about borrowers that um, have a you know, thin credit files in the term of the industry or um, low credit reference information. Um, and so how how can you assess them in terms of their credit risk if they they haven't lent before or you have uh, smaller amounts of data? Totally. So, yeah, so we are referring to that type of segments in specifically emerging markets in the world. So we help financial institutions to increase their credit origination to their underserved but credit-worthy borrowers using thousands of alternative data sources and auto machine learning or AI. So the way it works is that as a society, we have generated more data in the last two years than in the history of the world, and new sources of data are enabling access to credit as never before. So we uh, have been finding uh, not only data sources, but uh, non-conventional ways to uh, evaluate these candidates. For example, our client Walmart in Mexico found out with us that if you... um, uh, if somebody bought $100 per month for 12 straight months, they easily pay 500, 500 a loan of 500 bucks. So why checking them in the credit bureau? Some countries have some type of regulations that you still need to check on the credit reporting agencies, but uh, but um, that's just m- more on the regulation than on the evaluation component. Uh, so what sort of data goes into the mix here? So, um, you know, is, is it behavioral data? Is it payments data? Um, you know, what, what, I, I mean, famously we had, uh, Scott Sanborn, um, you know, who, who runs uh, lending club, you know, and he, he was saying, you know, in the U S for example, that some, the, that someone's pattern of paying their phone bill is a better predictor of, credit default risk than credit scoring mechanisms in the US as an example. So what um, specific data, obviously you've got purchasing data there, but um, you know, what behavioral data are you tapping? Yeah. So, and, and it's true what, what uh, he mentioned in the, in the lending club uh, case. So we have three types of data or analysis that we use. 70% of the problem currently is being solved by Reprocessing, categorizing, contextualizing the existing information that they currently have. So most of these financial institutions have not refined with the advanced data analytics that we we need today to find the 30 top metrics that companies like PayPal or Venmo use, like Gini, KS, Lawrence, Boxwood, Vintage Analysis, Performance Inference Analysis, RNSIB, Intrinsic Value, PSI, Population Stability Index. So those 30 metrics, basically once we transform the data, refine their data, instead of using data in historical and reactive way in a proactive and predictive way. So um, that's one, right? Then we have expert models in 14 financial products in more than 30 emerging countries, specifically in LATAM, where um, where, where we use uh, 
these expert models that are tropicalized, customized to each of these, uh, to the first point, which is the data that we refine from the financial institution. The data that we refine from the financial institution might be, you know, what data they capture when somebody applies to a loan, uh, who they approved, and out of the one that they approved to failed, but 10% of the sample, they don't tell us who failed, so we can do back testings. And finally, in terms of data providers, we use the example that you were saying, for example, telco. If somebody's prepaid in top of telco, telco minutes, potentially he's not in the credit bureau. So if he's not in the credit bureau, how much does he have every charge he's found in the last 90 days? If he did three times, he doesn't have not only ability, but the willingness to pay back a loan or changing the SIM. Uh, we have a hundred percent of the IPs and VPNs. So if somebody uh, belongs to a top 5% most stable internet connection, they easily pay a loan on time. Um, we enrich with psychometric data providers. So that measures uh, willingness to pay back a loan with some questions that measure gratification, uh, attitude towards the uh, social desire, materialism, um, we enrich with open banking data provider all of the information like transactions and movements uh, that we can now enrich with open banking data. Um, normally, these credit risk directors and data scientists uh, waste a lot of time and money trying to iterate, finding the exact weight that each attribute characteristic and dimension should have. And many other data sources, like, for example, metadata that measures all the digital data footprint of how somebody uh, answers when he's applying. Like, for example, how does it affect in a nano loan if he used the autocomplete elements? And finally, with ChatGPT, we are now capturing uh, dynamic onboardings. Um, so um, before there were static onboardings. Now uh, you can an ask, answer uh, 15 different questions in the onboarding of application of a credit loan to one individual. And if you want to apply pre-qualifying techniques, you can actually, if you know, for example, four things about a specific potential borrower, and you want to make sure that uh, you ask the fifth right question or the sixth uh, question before he just leave the application form. Uh, ChatGPT is enabling that and enabling capturing 20 more data sources like intellectualism, uh, how genuine is his answers, or for example, um, what's the actual intent that he has to to get to 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 use the funds of that loan. So um uh, you know, uh, are you able to do this in real time or do you, do you need access to data beforehand? Um, you know, how quickly can you, can you approve this? Because, you know, if we look at um, models emerging out of markets like China, where, you know, there's not established, uh, uh, you know, credit records and so forth, you've still got Alipay being able to use things like, you know, Alibaba's data, um, you know, for, for merchants to underscore um, you know, uh, lending there, uh, you know, famously with their 310 model, which is three minutes to apply, one second to approve, zero humans involved. This is a 310. So, um, you know, uh, you know, how do you talk about that in similar terms? Yeah, so definitely all financial institutions wants to have the this the the minimum time of application, and so they optimize towards that. So the way they, they do it with us is that uh, in the case they're going to be rejecting somebody, that's when they uh, are uh, enable us or allow us to extend more time 
um, asking questions or finding more information or extending the time in which they take to apply. So, but normally they don't they don't mind if they were already uh, uh, going to reject them, right? Now, in terms of sure, what sure. They, in terms of what data sources come, all of it it's in real time in milliseconds. But it all depends on the on on, on how strict uh, is the GDPR and CCPA. GDPR it's a regulation for those that know on on the privacy on on Europe, and CCPA in USA like the California Consumer Privacy Act, um, and then same for LGPD in in Brazil and and same for each of these countries, where most of them speak about this the the same type of regulation, which is. Um, that you can either be a data processor or, or a data collector. So data collectors are credit reporting agencies, financial institutions, and data providers. In our case, we are not a data collector. We're a data processor. So in the way law, the law regulates us is that um, basically when we're going to be doing back testings, we have access to the anonymous information of the financial institution, like no PII, Personal identifiable information. Sure. So, so we. So you're making a blind assessment based oh, purely on the data. Yeah, exactly. I understand that. We, now you've got you've been going for like four years. You've got uh, you, um, how many financial institutions are using the platform now? 120. So um, over that time, you know, how have the loans performed compared with the? you know, the the scoring um, that you've done beforehand, how does that match in terms of performance? So initially, when when we discovered this metric, we, we, we tested in Central America and the Caribbean, which are, you know, very, very uh, financial inclusion segments. We, we found that TransUnion and Equifax, which are the main credit bureaus in, in, in Central America and the Caribbean, we're rejecting about 70% of the applicants by using traditional mechanisms. And we were able to increase in those uh, 30 cases by 20% in uh, the origination with no added risk. And okay. uh, the standard deviation that we have for that is 5%. Okay, so you're talking about uh, you're able to increase inclusion for credit access, but to 20% of customers that would have previously been rejected. Is that right? Okay, so um, that's that's pretty impressive for financial inclusion um, metrics. Now, in in respect to the model that you've built, tell me about the AI. There's a lot of debate about uh, GPT and uh, these uh, large uh, language learning models and so forth. What type of AI competency have you built in the organization? Is it mainly a data science competency, or are you learn are you using learning models to improve accuracy? Yeah, so the, it all depends on the on the level of the financial institution that we're targeting. So the smallest financial institutions we take about eighty percent of the clients that we target. It's uh, mostly data science where the they um, basically have this data, you know, that they have haven't pre-processed with uh, machine learning models in the past. And uh, the first time they get this Gini KS and all, all these 30 metrics, they end up having, you know, 
lifts in, in origination and they get completely transformed their, their business, right? The second type of financial institution that uses are companies like City Dynamics or Scotiabank that um, they do have, you know, the capacity to build these 30 metrics of Gini, KS and all of that. And, and they have hundreds of data scientists and credit risk directors. But based on economies of scale, they're not gonna, they're not willing to invest the millions of dollars that we have invested in data pipelines, in data engineering, trying to not only uh, to, to not only uh, orchestrate uh, hundreds of predictive models across their decision engines, like the rules, decision flows, et cetera, like for example, the FICO decision model and things like that. And then we have the largest customers like the BBAs, the Santander's, the Caixas, Bradesco, Citaus, that that they they are they are willing to pay for investing in data pipelines, in data engineering, and for there for them we we have built a, a competencies of auto ML as a service for credit. So we are the only predictions as a service company in the world, 100% focused into credit. So the way it works is that or AutoML, for those that are not familiar, is basically the process of automating time-consuming iterative tasks that um, uh, or machine learning model development. And um, so we basically have, have built a, a competency in the company that either data scientists can experiment or uh, credit risk directors that don't have the knowledge to experiment, they can use some sort of campaigns that are that speak more simple in their language, but at the same, but it works for both departments. Understood. Understood. Um, you know, I mean, what's what's the size of this addressable market, do you think, in respect to LATAM in particular? I know you're based in Miami right now, um, uh, but, uh, you know, and you're ma- mainly focused on LATAM. Um, but are you talking about access to, um, you know, there's obviously financial inclusion issues still in the US and credit access issues in the US? Oh. Um yeah, so the way we have it organized is that we have a serve addressable market for LATAM and then a, a total addressable market for the global. So in LATAM, we have about 1,000 banks, 2,000 fintechs, 3,000 credit unions, 15,000 other type of financial institutions, and about 768,000 retailers and e-commerces that either that are currently not lending or could be lending using by now pay laters, but are not making profits on the lending side. So that gives you one, when you multiply that, the capacity that 4,000, that, that most of them could, you know, in average could pay $4,000 a month for 789,000 financial institutions, you get a, a serve address our market of about $37 billion just in LATAM. And you can take that uh, to to the global and and take it at least for a hundred and fifty billion dollar total address our market opportunity. Okay. Now, um, you know, one of the areas that's interesting here is AI, uh, particularly a conversational type AI. And you know, we we talking about ChatGPT and and technologies like that have the potential to actually you know be interactive. Um, so where do we take this in terms of helping people change their behavior so they become more credit worthy? Because this is not just about data collection, but it's also about behavioral elements. So how could you use this to coach people so that they can become less credit risky over time? 
Hundred percent. Yeah, the the behavioral part is super important. And uh, actually, last week I was uh, with with BBVA in their offices in in Mexico City, and we were speaking about this. Um, in US, you have this uh, concept or the cultural uh, aspect that everybody knows their FICO score, or they they use Credit Karma as their social network for credit, right? So every thirty days, they're aware of the increase and decreases in in, and it's so important for them that uh, they take care about it very, very much. No, I know, but the FICO score is is not a good predictor of credit risk. Exactly. You know, you know it, I was it, just it, I was it, just, it, just talking about the cultural aspect, right? right? right, right. No, when, but I, I mean, I, yeah, I understand that. Uh, you know, but I, I mean, uh, having come to the US with an excellent credit rating offshore and then having to build it in the US, it's took me more than a decade to build my credit score you know, to to eight hundred plus in, in the US. Um, you know, but the the thing is, when I first arrived in the United States, even though I had a stellar credit um, rating, um, you know, offshore from you know in places like uh, Hong Kong and Australia, in the US, I was a non person from a credit file perspective, mm-hmm. um, and so I had to build up that over time. So, in that respect, the FICO score was not actually an accurate assessment of my credit risk from a behavioural perspective. It was I how I had used the credit market in the United States. And when people have a low credit score in the United States, it's because they've defaulted or they've had problems paying um, paying uh, you know credit, and um, you know they're punished for that. That that's essentially how the credit scoring mechanism works. So for people that haven't used credit um, extensively, then it's, uh, um, you know, you you don't have, you know, the FICO scoring system, you know, I don't want to pick on FICO and Experian and these guys, but um, it's designed more as a mechanism to um, manage risk for someone who has already defaulted. Um, this, you know, what we need to do is we need to have measures that look at behaviors over sort of this punishment mechanism. That's my view of, of yeah, the credit score. No, scores. 100%. And, and, and going back to, it, to the point that we were speaking about, BBVA, and they're taking the, the approach that you are, that go in the same line that you just mentioned, which is that in they they are now, have, for example, in the, in their case, 20 million, in, and it's a project that we're working with them, 20 million um, individuals for financial inclusion that are in a situation of vulnerability. And they they don't want to reject them. They just want to, first of all, enable them to to whatever score they they built with their internal data or with Quash. Um, they want to also they want to give it to them like in a B two B two C approach, and then uh, also they want to tell them the exact reason, like with Shapley techniques, for example, that tells you the actual weight in which each attribute characteristic dimension or the missing holes that are actually affecting um, the capacity for them to obtain what they were looking for, or either something that it could be smaller or, or, or in different, more light or in different quantity, but that at least help them in somehow um, so that, that they can work. For example, if you have a formal employment, but you didn't report it uh, to BBVA, the informal empl- employment, you can upload some sort of information that once get validated, it automatically interacts in a more dynamic way for, with them. And this is kind of the approach of the most important banks in LATAM trying to help these segments. Right. Um, you know, because I think this is this is the challenge is, um, you know, is in the U.S., as you pointed out, we've been trained, you know, on on the credit scoring system, 
Um, but it's not necessarily the best um, system that we could have. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the system itself is, what, 40, 50 years old now. And with AI, we've got much better methodologies here. And I know some organizations are already using this. Um, even you talk about Credit Karma, you know, Credit Karma doesn't actually pull from the credit scoring data every month. It, it sort of replicates the algorithms or, or the credit scoring uh, mechanism. So it's an approximation of that. But, you know, we need to start, uh, you know, uh, as uh, you know, we get more sophisticated uh, technologies. Certainly, we see we should have be able to have more control over people's understanding of their behaviors that you know constitute uh, yeah, risky behavior. So, you know, that's my point: is how do you, yeah, 100%. how do we, you know, uh, you know, how how often, um, you know, uh, are we having to inject ourselves into people's lives to have an effect on their credit riskiness? Yeah, so Brett, the, the, the answer to this question is exactly the reason why I ended up building and founding this company about four years ago. One of the founders of Quash worked for about 10 years building the Facebook Ads Optimization Manager at Facebook. And about 10 years ago, when 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 that technology was basically generating the, the most revenue for that Facebook or Meta, uh, they were. He was building the AutoML to help companies like T-Mobile and Budweiser in the U.S. go from 300 um, campaigns to 3,000 campaigns. Now, that same technology, we thought it could disrupt the financial services world, and that's the reason why we built Quash. Why? Because now we can start. We have clustering techniques that create correlations in a non-conventional way where you can, for example, if bread uh, is similar to these 1,200 individuals based on these dimmer interest demographics and behaviors, or for example, this, this woman, uh, these 1,200 women that are married that have more than one child that earn more than this per month, that specific cluster, it's a, like a lookalike credit cluster, could replace a basis model or a basis machine learning model that a financial institution is using based on that that angle could have better ROI and confidence that that individual will pay on time. So we what, what we're building with AutoML is the capacity for these financial institutions to, to go from a few changes in their credit policy a year to hundreds and thousands of changes that uh, depending on when a cluster can replace uh, in a champion challenger or A-B testing way, another angle, angle for better performance. No, I understand that from a data modeling perspective. So you've created, you know, you've got these cohorts, um, you know, from a data perspective that you've identified that are less risky, um, that fall outside of the, the typical rules or typical scoring mechanism. But um, you know, have you thought about using nudges or notifications to customers as a as a mechanism to help them become less risky over time? Hundred percent. Yeah, it's the the approach that we were taking with with a BBVA app uh, in the last example uh, and the convergence with with the last concept that we were speaking in terms of clusterings, all of that point out to um, to to this kind of data wallet vision where the individual not only has a score and the Shapley techniques with when where you see the actual weight that each attribute should be having and the recommendation. But each of these clusters and correlations actually have a, a message 
for them. So once you wait, which are the, the ones that are going to be moving the needle the most, it's when, or depending on the financial need, the, the, uh, uh, product that they're, they're looking for, because some of them might, might enable them to have an annual loan, a micro loan, a credit card, a motorcycle. But when then it comes to, you know, a small and medium business loan or, or a mortgage that require much more than just sure. uh, good behaviors and questions, that's when it comes to challenge, so- right? What what's the average loan size we're talking about here? So for nano loans, we in Latam nano loans are considered up to five hundred bucks. Right, and then uh, you can have, speak about micro loans up, all, all the way up to five to ten k. Once you go from ten k up, it's called consumer right. loans. Right, yeah. more traditional modeling. Well, this is the this is the big growth area in in uh, you know it, uh, you know globally. I mean, even if you look at WeBank's uh, work in in Shenzhen in China, the nano loans, you know, average loan size is like fifty fifty dollars US. Um, but you know, they've got three hundred million customers in that range, so you know, there, that, there's an addressable approach. Market. Yeah, and with that approach, they diversify because your models are good, uh, as good as your data is. So we get a lot of clients that you know come without uh, using any AI in the past, but they have like ten applicants of mortgages or ten applicants of well, you know of of small and medium business loans a, a month, and the machine learning models uh, n- don't work as good as when you have a large amount of data. So that's right. going back to your point, the the approach that most of these businesses have, where they cover more than five, 10 different financial products is that they start learning from them, from the financial institutions that are much voluminous and and, and that's and that's how they build the whole credit history uh, on them to give them larger size tickets. So you've talked about BBVA, um, Scotiabank, I know is also a client of yours, um, Acacia, so forth. So, you know, you've got some big names there. Um, wh- uh, where can people find out more about the platform? So you can send an email to info at quash, Q-U-A-S-H, that AI, or you can just go to our Check website, website. or find us in all of the LinkedIn or different uh, social medias. Now, um, you know, you, you have uh, had some success. Uh, you uh, raised a million dollars in early stage funding after winning the FinTech Americas uh, Award. Um, uh, where are you at in your uh, maturation and funding cycle? Yeah, so we were, actually, we, we raised four, millions, four million already in a seed equity round uh, from inside partners, uh, the founders of Riverwood Capital and H20 Capital and all our investors. And yeah, the, the way we see um, with all of the challenges of macroeconomic changes and uh, where the stage of startup and, and banking is today, we are taking, you know, uh, an approach uh, a little bit more conservative in the way we invest in R and D in these days, uh, hoping to have, you know, lots of 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 capital. Uh, with I know, it. but you got you've got revenue already, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. you're operational. So yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's good news. Yeah, yeah, no. But what we're trying to hit is about 700 financial institutions using Quash uh, in the next three to four years to try to have Big numbers. Numbers. But we expect to have about. Uh, doing a series a around next year yeah fantastic well yoel um it's uh, really interesting to see how ai is being used to change access to financial services particularly for credit access thank you for coming on breaking banks today thank you so much brad and for the invitation and uh see you around in all of the events that we made uh, around the year absolutely
You're listening to Breaking Banks. Uh, that's it for today's show. Thanks for uh, catching up with us. We do like to highlight uh, startups from time to time, working on some uh, leading edge uh, technologies like this. I hope you found it interesting. If you do like the show, please uh, leave us, um, you know, a, a review uh, on on whichever podcasting platform that you use. That is helpful to for other people to find the show. And uh, of course, uh, you know, make sure you tweet out about us or, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, do status updates on LinkedIn or whatever your social media uh, platform of choice is. Thanks for uh, joining us. My thanks go out to the team at uh, Provoke, Lisbeth Severins, our producer, Kevin Hersham, our audio engineer, uh, the social media team and uh, so forth. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week back on Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.